Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based information to your pharmacy practice. For the next 20 minutes, Jeff Wall reviews the first randomized controlled trial comparing loop diuretics in heart failure. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. So today we are going to be talk about a subject that forces me to eat some crow, and and that's easy for me to do. But uh, as as one of my mentors said once, if you're not willing to change with uh, with the guide and with the evidence based studies that come out, then you know you really can't call yourself an evidence based practitioner. And so uh, that's what I'm hoping to be able to do today. So today we're going to talk about the Transform HF study, a study that looked at a, a clinical question that I've certainly wondered about over the last 15 years or so, and that's uh, which uh, a loop diuretic is best to put patients on when they have heart failure. Now, you know, you know, we've used loop diuretics and, and they're one of the cornerstones of goal-directed therapy and heart failure for, for many, many years. They're extremely effective, as, as we all know, at decongesting patients, as they like to say now, basically, you know, making sure that, that, that they're fluid neutral and not, and not too fluid overloaded. And certainly if you were to poll a hundred physicians and say, quick name a loop diuretic, I mean, everybody would say ferrosamide or Lasix um, because it's by far the most popular uh, medication and, and, you know, not necessarily necessarily that it's, it, it was ever thought it was better than the other ones, but just like hydrochlorothiazide for the thiazide-based diuretics, I think that it's just kind of burned into the physician, uh, burned into the brain of every uh, physician and provider that it, that's the one we're going to use in everybody. So now, you know, uh, ferrosamide has been used since the 1970s and, and uh, you know, it, it, it seems to work pretty decently. Um, I'm occasionally asked by my students, you know, you know, it, it's, it's a part of go-directed therapy because it improves mortality. And the answer is we have absolutely no idea. Idea. There's never been a really good randomized control trial looking at loop diuretics and uh, mortality associated with heart failure, and we probably will never have one. I mean, I, as I tell my students, even if the studies were to show an increase in mortality with loop diuretics and heart failure, would anyone stop using them because they're so effective at treating symptoms? So we'll never know. But I mean, you know, the theory would be that it probably does at least yeah, it certainly does decrease hospitalization, which is probably a pretty good thing. But ferrosamide has always had some some pharmacokinetic issues compared to some of the other diuretics on the market market, uh, notably torsamide and bumetanide. Uh, it has a very low uh, bio, uh, bioavailability, somewhere between 40 and 60%, which of course is why uh, when people are intravenous, uh, we start intravenous diuretics and people usually double the dose uh, because, uh, it, uh, uh, because of the low bioavailability of oral versus IV. And of course, it, it has relatively short acting compared to the other diuretics on the market. And the popular, uh, uh, I don't know if it's an urban legend or real, um, is that Lasix was called Lasix because it lasts six hours. Now, that's really what I was taught. And um, one of these days, I promise myself I'm going to go down into the bowels of our medical library and pull old uh, uh, New England Journal of Medicines and JAMAs and take a look at, at some of the advertisements that they had back in the 70s to see if that's really how they advertise the drug. I, I know recently I was seeing something on Twitter where that's more of an urban legend than, than the reality. But the bottom line is, for whatever reason, it, we do know the ferrosamide does not uh, have, it isn't as long acting as we met nine torsamide. So, you know, Again, there's always been this thought that there's some pharmacokinetic reasons to not use ferrosamide compared to the other diuretics and heart failure. So, um, and of course, you know, there was always one of these things where it's like, well, they're all generic drugs. So who is going to conduct a randomized control trial to really find, find the answer? And fortunately, somebody decided to do that in the Transform HF study. Now, retrospective studies have long suggested that torsamide in particular seems to have some benefits over ferrosamide. And, and in preclinical uh, studies, not only does it seem to be more potent and, and longer lasting, but there's some other 
in my opinion, probably kind of nebulous theoretical advantages and that it has beneficial effects on aldosterone production and sympathetic activation. It decreases natriuretic peptides and all the other stuff, which is all terrific, but does that actually translate in, in, into clinical benefit? As I said, several small studies and meta-analyses have suggested a decrease in morbidity and potentially mortality with torosemide compared to Lasix. But again, there was just, you know, real, no really one well, really well done randomized controlled trials. And with these drugs being generic, I never thought there would be, but, but again, I'm, I'm great for the investigators to do the transform HF study. And the reason they were able to pull off this study, uh, I think, was because it was a pragmatic randomized study that they did most of the follow-up by phone and from a central location. So this was a relatively, let's face it, cheap study to do. And, and I think that's why they were able to pull off, off the trial. I think a traditional randomized control trial would, would have probably been too cost prohibitive for any uh, investigators other than, say, drug companies or the NIH to be able to pull off. So the transform HF study, uh, uh, again, was designed to compare the effect of torsamide with furosemide in patients hospitalized with heart failure. So, uh, you know, these are patients who got hospitalized with heart failure and then were discharged on either furosemide or, or, or torsamide. It was an open label because that's probably the easiest way to do this, again, to, to save money, pragmatic, randomized, uh, comparative effectiveness study. Um, and they wanted to see whether, you know, uh, patients who were discharged on torsamide versus furosemide would have a, a benefit and their benefit was a result in lower risk of death um, from any cause in patients with heart failure regardless of ejection fraction. And that's an important piece to talk about in the trial as they did include both HEF-REF and HEF-PEF patients. That stands to reason we certainly use loop diuretics in both of those, those patients. It was conducted in 60 hospitals in the United States. So let's take a look at the, at the trial itself. Uh, inclusion criteria was actually pretty broad. Uh, you could be hospitalized with heart failure, either new onset heart failure, or the, we didn't know you'd had it previously, or worsening of chronic heart failure. Um, they have to have, had to have a, a left ejection fraction of 40% or less within 24 hours or an elevated natriuretic peptide during the ex-hospitalization. So you didn't absolutely have to have low EF heart failure. You could have normal EF heart failure as well as an elevated uh, natriuretic peptide level during the index hospitalization as measured by the local library. Um, then the other inclusion criteria is that they needed to be uh, planned to be discharged on oral loop diuretic with anticipated long-term use. So, I mean, that's really the big inclusion criteria. So very, very broad inclusion criteria. Um, they were recruited during hospitalization up until the time of discharge. They did exclude patients with end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis, a history of heart transplant, or LVAD, left ventricular assist devices that make sense. Those are patients really at uh, uh, kind of the end of, of their journey of heart failure or the, of their disease trajectory, as it were. So of everybody else, they then randomized patients in a one-to-one -one ratio of either torsamide or furosemide prior to hospital discharge. All of the dose and the frequency was all determined by the treating physician. So there wasn't a standardized protocol where they said you had to go some uh, home on 40 of, of furosemide or 20 of Demodex, and they just use the standard conversion of one milligram of torsamide to two to four of oral furosemide. Certainly, um, I've heard both uh, um, conversions in my career where they say, you know, 40 of furosemide is about 20 of, of, of torsamide, or 40 is, is 10 of torsamide. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure anyone really knows the information, but I, I, I like the fact that they gave some flexibility in dosing uh, to the uh, treating clinician. And again, that, that, that was done on purpose just because they weren't really sure about the, the true conversion of that 
diuretics, and they wanted to give the provider some flexibility in adjusting doses. And after they were discharged, the follow-up uh, adjustment of their loop diuretics was based entirely on the clinical discretion of their usual outpatient uh, physician. So, um, you know, after they were discharged or one or the other, the ad- adjustment up or down could, could, could be done. Also, they could ha- switch between different diuretics. And if there's a problem with this study, I suspect that's one of the big strikes of the study is, is there was, as you might expect, some significant crossover between the arms, because again, they didn't dictate to the outpatient uh, clinicians that they had to stay on torosamide or had to stay on ferrosamide. Uh, that was it. Uh, once they were discharged, there was no sp- study-specific patient contact. In fact, they used a centralized follow-up uh, uh, via the Duke Clinical Research Institute call center. Um, as you guys know, Duke, Duke uh, it, it, the Clinical Research uh, Institute is one of the largest uh, clinical trial groups in the country, uh, especially for cardiology studies, and they really have everything down to a science there about how to do trials, how to, how to collect data and follow up and stuff. They had telephone interviews at 30 days, six months, and 12 months following discharge, and uh, they wanted uh, to provide estimates on long-term treatment adherence and support uh, adequate event accru- accrual. The first 1,500 patients had additional follow-up, uh, They received, and then the first 500 received telephone calls every six months through 30 months, and then uh, participants 500 through 1,000 received calls every other year, <laughs> and uh, the first uh, 1,000 to 1,500 patients see telephone calls uh, through 18 months. So, you know, they want to take a look, you know, short-term and long-term to, I think, take a look at outcomes as well as adherence. Now, keep in mind, you know, they, they were, they, the only way they were able to measure adherence is literally ask the patient, right? Are you adherent to your medication? You know, uh, th- there was no, you know, objective way to measure whether patients were actually take, taking their medications. The primary efficacy outcome was all-cause mortality, which is probably one of the biggest outcomes you can shoot for. And of course, that means that they're going to need quite a few patients to show that, right? because all-cause mortality uh, tends to be a big uh, um, tends to be a, a big outcome and because the overall rate of mortality is relatively low in, in many populations they were going to need a ton of patients in this study to show a, a statistically uh, significant difference if one existed um, and and but again I, I give them credit for really looking at probably the biggest outcome you could probably look at in in heart failure patients they did stratify patients by age so you know different brackets of ages um, they uh, stratified by gender, race, and ethnicity. Uh, they also stratified by ejection fraction, which is probably one of the most important things to do where these patients have for F or have patients. They also stratified them by loop diuretic prior to hospital initiation, New York Heart Association class at randomization, systolic blood pressure, estimated GFR, and they had cut points for the different creatinine clearances between those, whether or not they had diabetes, whether or not they were on mineral corticoid receptor antagonists at randomization, where they were treated, um, and duration of heart failure. So so they stratified by numerous different types of subtypes. Keep in mind when you're when you're doing that by a whole bunch of different subtypes, you're probably going to lose power when you take a look at, at, at the uh, individual um, um, stratification groups as you take a look at that. That uh, again, all cause mortality was the primary outcome. Uh, then secondary outcomes, there were several of them, including um, uh, total hospitalizations, all cause hospitalizations over 12 months, um, and and uh, a couple of other uh, outcomes as well. I think those are kind of the big ones. All cause hospitalization was evaluated as opposed to cardiac or heart failure hospitalization to assess the total readmission burden. So, you know, you could argue, gee, you know, should they have just done um, heart failure hospitalizations? But I think they wanted to take a look, especially since this is a pragmatic study, you know, you know, it might be hard to determine whether somebody was hospitalized because of heart failure alone, or did that play a role in their hospitalization? So I think that that was a, that was a good outcome to take a look at that as well. They did look at quality of life endpoints, and they actually are not going to report that in this study. They're going to report it in us a future study. So 
uh, this was an event-driven study. Um, one of the advantages of event-driven studies is that, that, that you can maintain power, usually with an overall less number of patients. So again, that kind of varies from study to study. They were trying to get uh, 80 to 90% power um, uh, to show a difference if, if one existed. Um, I think they probably suspected going into this study, or I think their, their, their thought as investigators is there probably wasn't going to be a big, huge, uh, statistically significant difference between the two. So I think, again, using a using an event-driven study with a high power, they really wanted to decrease the chance that that they would not find a, an out, a, a difference if one, in fact, existed. You could argue, should they have done a, a non-inferiority study? But again, considering they were looking at all-cause mortality and they wanted to find, is one better than another? I think the way they designed the study is, is probably reasonable to do. Since it was event-driven study, they wanted to take a look at, at the general number of patients, and they figured they need up to 6,000 uh, participants to accrue the necessary uh, patients to have enough events to see if there was a difference that one existed. As you might imagine, the statistics were, were pretty pretty complex. They used a, a Cox proportional hazard regression model to, to, to take into account all these different uh, subgroups they were taking, uh, taking a look at and all these different modifiers of, of heart failure, again, age, gender, ejection fraction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they did do some post hoc analyses that uh, they wanted to look at at the site to see if that was that was a, a, played a role in what was going on. So the site where the patient was treated, um, they did do a, a bunch of uh, variance estimators as well. So again, a, a fairly complex uh, a statistical analysis. They tried to assess the implications of COVID-19, which is something I think we're going to see in clinical trials for probably the next 10 years. You know, they, they uh, used uh, COVID-19 in, in their statistical analysis as a dependent covariate. So they wanted to see before or after the study was there a difference between uh, the outcomes as well? So looking at baseline characteristics of the patients, um, the average age between the torsamide and, and frosamide group was very similar, about 64 years old. Uh, the majority of patients were male, but about 40% uh, of patients were female. Uh, interestingly, and I think good for, for the uh, uh, investigators, um, while uh, uh, white patients did make up the majority, about 35% uh, of patients were Black or African American, which I thought was, was good to see, and about 6% uh, of patients were of, of Hispanic ethnicity, left ventricular ejection fraction, the overwhelming number of patients in this study were HEF-REF patients, um, about 70% in both groups had an EF less than 40%, and um, the vast majority of them were on diuretics prior to hospitalization or the index hospitalization. And again, not probably surprisingly, over half of the patients in both arms came in on furosemide with only a small percentage of patients on, on torosemide or bumetanide. About 40% of each group had atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. About half of them had diabetes and about a third of them had uh, chronic kidney disease, but not bad enough to, 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 to be excluded from the study. The body mass index between the two, as you might imagine, was, was a bit high at 32 between, between the two groups. So what did they find in the study? What are the results. We're going to talk about that right after this word from CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we're back talking about the Transform HF study, um, a study I was, was very glad to see come out again, even though I'm probably going to eat some crow when we talk about the, the outcomes, because again, this was a clinical uh, a question that really needed to be answered, and I'm glad they, they, they actually did the study. Uh, as far as the outcomes are concerned, as, as you might imagine from my comments previously, they didn't find a difference. And so uh, death occurred in 26.1% of the torsamide group versus 26.2% of the furosemide group, uh, and that, of course, was not statistically significant. Uh, there were 
11 deaths during index hospitalization, seven in the torsamide group, four in the furosemide group. And the effect of torsamide on the primary outcome was pretty much the same over all the different groups. Now, again, remember that you lose power when you divvy things up. But the bottom line is if you take a look at, you know, what type of EF they had, you know, if they were what their gender was, what their age was, what their ethnicity was, were they on loop diuretics prior to um, uh, hospitalization, were they on mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, all of these things, there was no difference in all-cause mortality between torosamide and furosemide across all the groups and, as they were gone there. Pre-specified sensitivity analysis in the as-treated population was consistent with the primary analysis as well. Um, and again, they did, they did a, a variety of different um, um, uh, subgroup analyses and really didn't find any difference. And COVID didn't seem to have a significant effect on uh, the primary results either. So the results are similar between pre-COVID and post-COVID. Um, all-cause mortality and all-cause hospitalization, which was a secondary outcome, occurred in 47.3% of the torosemide group compared to 49.3% of the furosemide group. So it was 2% smaller, but uh, it did not reach statistical significance. Um, there was 37.5 total hospitalizations in the torosemide group and 40.4% in the furosemide group. And again, did not reach statistical significance, even though the numbers were, were lower. They did do a post-doc analysis to address competing risk of all-cause mortality. And again, uh, found uh, did find a statistically significant difference with torosemide compared with, with, with furosemide. Uh, so again, it was there was a slight improvement in all-cause mortalities or less all-cause hospitalizations uh, through 12 months with torosemide versus furosemide. What does that mean? In my opinion, probably not much. I was always kind of taught uh, when the primary outcome is no difference and you start doing some data mining and to try and find a difference in secondary outcomes, uh, you might find a difference in one or other secondary outcomes. But because your primary outcome was negative, that, you, that can often be due to the play of, of chance. And so it, you really can't hang your hat on that and say, okay, well, you know, the, at least as far as total hospitalizations are concerned, torosemide was better than furosemide. I'm really not sure you can say that as, as well. Uh, you might be interested in know what the, the dose they discharged people on. And I, th I think was, was reasonable. They, they discharged people on about 80 milligrams of furosemide and about 40 to, uh, milligrams of torsemide. So about what you'd expect to see. So I don't think that the doses were too low or anything along those lines. Um, at one month data, uh, um, they did find that those prescribed the assigned loop diuretic, uh, they'd gone up some. And so uh, the mean dose was slightly higher uh, um, in the furosemide group and slightly lower in the torsemide group. It probably did not, you know, it wasn't clinically significant between the two. So bottom line for the study was they did not find a significant difference in all-cause mortality or the combination outpoint of all-cause hospitalizations and all-cause mortality uh, between uh, furosemide and torosemide. Now, the uh, investigators, I think, do a pretty good job in analyzing their own study and saying, you know, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? And they note that crossover was actually really common, that that patients who were on the, uh, particularly the torosemide group, were often switched to the furosemide group uh, during the, during the uh, trial, and that may have some role on the outcomes as, uh, associated between the two, and I think that's, that's certainly true. They also note that, that again, even though they tried to um, uh, assess adherence, that there's really no way to kind of do that in, in a systematic or objective manner. So that may have related to the to uh, um, uh, what the outcomes were. And again, they noted that that the big crossover that occurred was people in the torosemide group often were reverted back to their prior loop diuretic. Uh, they note that they did not reach their target uh, outcome. Remember, they were this was an event-driven study, and while they were close, they did not reach the the total number of, of events between between the torsamide and, and, and furosemide groups and all-cause mortality. And when you don't do that, again, does that lower the power and decrease the ability to find a difference if one exists? But, you know, I, I think they were close enough that, that you know, I think you can still take this, this information and really use it at the bedside. So it seems that there 
there's not a lot of difference. It seems like they're there uh, that you can go with with uh, uh, torsamide or furosemide, and you seem to get very similar outcomes between the two groups. So uh, again, something I've been saying for over probably over 15 years was, you know, when somebody comes in with figure with HEFREF, um, especially if they've had multiple hospitalizations for HEFREF, um, I would often uh, send them out on uh, bubentonide or torsamide. Again, on the theory that it was going to give us uh, uh, um, some pharmacokinetic advantages and that they were going to maintain uh, diuresis, even if uh, they started to, to ingest too much sodium, for example, and started to, to um, uh, gain fluid. And again, the thought was always that patients who are, have HEFREF, let's say they have a, have a dietary indiscretion and, and eat a whole bunch of sodium and they start collecting fluid and, and becoming fluid overloaded, you know, not only does their lungs and their legs get full of fluid, but their gut gets fluid, full of fluid as well, which decreases absorption of drugs. And the thought was always that furosemide, because it's, it's poor bioavailability, would not be absorbed hardly at all, whereas torsemide and bubentonide, because their bioavailability is approaching 100%, would still have significant um, um, absorption. Again, this study does not bear that theory out that it, that patients in, in general seem to have very similar numbers of all, all outcomes. So, you know, um, I guess I'm going to stop making that recommendation. And, and, and it just goes to show, um, you know, what you know, you know, Know, what you think you know sometimes just isn't so, as they used to say. And you know, I'm glad they did this study because, again, it's it's been a clinical question for many years that um, I think needed to be answered. And and I'm certainly going to change my recommendations. And and I, I suspect that other clinicians will as well, especially in the realm of of, of cardiology and heart failure. Now, does that mean torsamide is a bad drug to use? No, I, I think I think it's certainly reasonable to use. But furosemide is probably the least expensive of all the the loop diuretics, though they're all generic and there probably isn't a whole lot of difference. Um, I think that that for clinicians dealing with particularly HEFREF, that you can feel confident that that furosemide is as good as anything else. Um, it would be nice if we found a difference because I think, you know, uh, something that, that we all struggle with with heart failure is readmissions or, or um, uh, more access to, to physicians and more clinic visits and stuff like that. Um, I, I suppose you could you could say it would have been nice if there had been a big difference because maybe that would have caused a big shift uh, in prescribing away from furosemide to torosemide. But bottom line is we didn't See that, and so I think you're 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 okay to, to use either one of those in your patients uh, with with uh, heart failure, but particularly have ref. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.